If you have your Bibles or a device, you can go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, uh, 1 through 10. And I'm still uh, not ready to start the, uh, the new series that I was planning uh, from some different places in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and the reason for that is uh, that uh, I'm going to be in the pulpit this week and next week, but then the elders have graciously allowed uh, for me to take some vacation uh, followed by some study leave in the month of September. So uh, in the next month, in, in September, um, I will be away and I will be out of the pulpit for, for four weeks. And I'd appreciate your prayers uh, during that time. It will be a good time of rest and renewal uh, to come back strong and, and, uh, and pick up where we left off. Uh, but in our, our series on belonging to Christ that we just finished last week, we made the claim repeatedly that Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure, that he surpasses literally everything else that exists, that if we have absolutely nothing else but we have Jesus, then in him we have more than enough. Now, it's hard for most of us, not all of us perhaps, but most of us to even begin to imagine what it would mean to have nothing. But what must it be like for our brothers and sisters in Haiti who already have endured decades of uh, poverty and political unrest to so recently have experienced political violence now followed by a massive earthquake? And what must it be like for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who were already a, a tiny, constantly persecuted minority to now be threatened with martyrdom by the Taliban. And I've personally had the privilege of spending time with believers who have very little materially and have very little comfort. And I've experienced that in places like Haiti and Colombia and Nicaragua. And I've always been humbled and convicted when I see the joy and the freedom that they have in the Lord. Here am I who have been given so much, and they with so little, and yet their satisfaction and their delight in the Lord, even as they endure suffering and sorrow, put mine to shame. They have learned the secret that Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure. And this is how Jesus presents himself in the Gospels. And this is how Jesus presents himself in the immediate context of the passage that we're going to read. And in the few verses before our chapter, Jesus presents himself in just this way. Crowds have been following Jesus and gathering around Jesus, and he's about to, to begin to thin them out a little bit. And he says things like this, I am the treasure that surpasses your family and even your own life. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want to be clear here that 
Jesus is, is not telling us to, to have the emotion of hate, to despise our family members. No, the scriptures tell us again and again that family is a good blessing from God that is to be honored and provided for. Nor is he telling us to despise uh, the reality of our lives, that we shouldn't want to die. What Jesus is saying when he says we must hate our fathers and mothers and wives and children and brothers and sisters and even our own life, he's telling us that to be his disciple, we must prize him. We must treasure him over and above even his best gifts. He tells the crowds, I am the treasure that is worth enduring self-denial and suffering to receive. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus uses what all of these people would have understood to be an instrument of shame and execution. A method of killing criminals called a cross. And he says, listen, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, then you're going to have to deny yourself. And you're going to have to take up this path and follow me in a path of suffering. And I'm worth it. Jesus tells the crowds, I am the treasure worth trading everything for. Luke 14, 34. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that he is the all-surpassing treasure. That being his disciple means laying down your life and surrendering everything that you have for him. And he is warning the crowds to count the cost of having him. And this is a hard teaching. That Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure is is not uh, a statement that we can merely affirm and feel good about apart from a willingness to renounce everything that we have. To consider Christ a greater treasure than our family members whom we love and are so close to us. To say that that Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure is not an easy teaching. It is a hard teaching. We we so want to hear those words of Jesus. We need to take up our cross and follow him. We need to renounce everything that we have to follow him. We want to to spiritualize those and we want to soften those so they're not as radical as they are. This is hard teaching. And yet we see that there is a particular group of people. As hard as this teaching is, there is a particular group of people in the crowds that are almost explicably still drawn to Jesus. Who is it? Hearing Jesus saying these radically difficult things, who is it that is still inexplicably drawn to Jesus? We're going to see in Luke 15 1 through 10. So if you're able, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. And we find out in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's thank the Lord for his word and ask for his help. Oh, Lord our God, we are dependent on you, Holy Spirit, this morning to take this word and to illumine our minds and our hearts so that we might understand it, so that we might believe it, so that we might love it, so that we might apply it, and so that we might be transformed by it. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this time, by your spirit and by your word, you would give us just a glimpse of the beauty of your heart for us, we who are sinners. And Lord, let that that glimpse of your love create a responsive love in our hearts for you that surpasses what we have known before and transforms us into more faithful followers, conforms us into your image. Lord Jesus, because you really are the all-surpassing treasure, we thank you for this time together around your word, and we pray that you would bless it to your people as we await your work in us and through us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Why did the leper forced to quarantine from society because his disease was contagious and because he was constantly, ceremoniously unclean, why did he feel compelled to approach Jesus and to say to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. If you will, you can make me clean. Why did the the little old woman, so afflicted for 12 years by this discharge of blood, and of course, as a result, being constantly ceremonially unclean and an outcast in religious society, why did she feel compelled to see the crowds that were surrounding Jesus and work her way through them just to get a glimpse of him and just to touch the hem of his garment, believing that she would be made well. Why did Zacchaeus, that wee little man, Zacchaeus the tax collector, why did he climb up in that tree to see the Lord? Why did the people bring their children and babies to Jesus so that he would bless them. Why did the Roman centurion in Capernaum, a man who was a foreigner to Israel and to the things of God, 
In fact, an oppressor of Israel as a soldier and a man in authority in the Roman army, why did he feel compelled to go to Jesus and say, Lord, you don't have to come to my house. I wouldn't even ask you to darken my door. But if you will just say the word, I know that my servant will be healed. Why? Why did the known prostitute feel compelled to go into the house of a Pharisee with all those religious people who knew who she was and knew what she did and kneel at the feet of Jesus with her expensive perfume and break open the flask and pour it on Jesus' feet as she cried and wiped his feet with her tears and her hair and never stopped kissing his feet. Why? Simply this. And it's our first point this morning. Sinners are drawn to Jesus. Sinners are drawn to Jesus. Luke 15, 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors, if you've had any study in the first century in the New Testament era, you know that tax collectors, particularly in Israel, were not well thought of. They were considered the dregs of society because not only were they working for the evil empire that was occupying and abusing their people, but they were known for taking more than even the government demanded for their own benefit and profiting off of their own neighbors and countrymen. That's one group. Sinners were those who by reputation neglected the religious practices of the community or uh, people who by their actions or by their profession, like the prostitute, openly violated those standards. This would include, of course, transgressions of God's law, which is found in the Old Testament, but also violations of the various rules and regulations that were added by uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes who we see in the very next verse. And these tax collectors and sinners, those who were unquestionably guilty before God and those who were absolutely looked down on by others were drawn to Jesus. And they were drawn to Jesus not because he was teaching something that was easy for them to accept, not because he was pumping them up about their personal greatness and their destiny like Joel Osteen. No. Jesus was literally saying, you have to be willing to walk away from whatever has defined your life up to this point. You have to be willing to deny your own desires and your own plan for your life. You have to be willing to walk away from all that you have counted valuable and come after him in order to be his disciple. These are not easy things to hear. To count something more valuable than my family? To take up an instrument of shame and execution in a cross to renounce my possessions? The way we might respond to this is, but Lord, you have blessed me with my family. And you have blessed me with my comfort. And you have blessed me with my possessions. Hashtag blessed. And I get to have you too. And that's a pretty good deal for me. 
And you're saying that I have to be ready to lose it all and be left with only you? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm saying. This is the choice that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. Remember that young man who's got a lot of money and he's got a good reputation and he's got a good record. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler, arrogant and self-righteous as he is, says, well, I've kept the commandments since my youth. What else? Jesus says, okay, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give the proceeds to the poor. Come and follow me and then you will have eternal life. And the scriptures tell us that this young man walked away from Jesus so that he could keep his stuff. And if we are honest with ourselves, how many of us would respond the same way? This is the cost of discipleship. And the reason that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawn to Jesus is because they knew a secret. He's worth it. Anything that Jesus would ask of you, he's worth it. The tax collectors and the sinners were already those who had indulged themselves. In order to do so, they had dropped even the pretense of religiosity. One of the challenges for us in our day and time and place is that it is easy for us to allow self-indulgence to coexist with our religiosity or even to take self-indulgence and make it a part of our religious practice. See, these folks had gone after the treasures of money and material things. They had gone after the treasure of pleasure and they had come to the end of indulgence and they found what Augustine found, what the writer of Ecclesiastes found. It wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. And that's what you've found too if you have counted as your treasure something that has failed you. And you certainly have, as I have. And they looked at the emptiness of their lives. And they looked at the wreck that they had made of their lives. And they looked at their uncleanness before the holy God that Jesus was proclaiming and then they encountered this man. And he wasn't very approachable because he was so different from them. His holiness was evident to them. They knew that they had not loved God and that they had not loved their neighbor. And they saw that he loved God and loved his neighbor better than anyone they had ever seen. And his power was evident to them. They saw how he was at work making the broken whole and making the unclean clean. And his beauty was evident to them, not in his external appearance. Isaiah 53 tells us that there he had no majesty, that there was nothing in his external appearance to draw us to him. No, his beauty and the way that he lived among them and the way that he treated them. And his love was evident to them in the way that he, who appeared to them to be perfect and their perception was right, that he received 
them. The Pharisees and the scribes, you know, they, they had also indulged themselves. They may not have indulged themselves in sin. They may not have indulged themselves in worldly things. They may not have indulged themselves in pleasure. No, they indulged themselves in themselves and in their self-righteousness and in their reputation. See, what they didn't know is that they too were sinners. And they were self-indulgent. And when they saw Jesus receiving those sinners and tax collectors, they grumbled and complained about him. This man receives sinners and eats with them. See, the people who thought most of themselves, the people who thought that they were good enough for God, The people who looked down on other people who were not as outwardly good as they were, they were not drawn to Jesus. Self-righteous people are not drawn to Jesus. They don't see their need of him. But the people who have made a mess of their lives, the people who know that they are not good enough for a holy God, They are drawn to Jesus. They see their need for him. And not only do they see their need for Jesus, they also see something else. They also see and experience that Jesus is drawn to sinners. It's one thing to realize in reading the New Testament that sinners are drawn to Jesus That makes sense to us because Jesus is the perfection of holiness and righteousness and justice and mercy and beauty and everything else. He is desirable. We want him. Sinners are drawn to Jesus. What's remarkable is that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God and the all-surpassing treasure is drawn to us. That Jesus is drawn to sinners. The, tax collect, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes say, this man receives sinners. This man receives sinners. This is good news, y'all. This man receives sinners. And that's not all. Jesus doesn't just receive sinners. He is drawn to them. He goes after them. Jesus in a focused, intentional way, seeks sinners. And here Jesus tells two stories. He tells two parables, and he doesn't tell them to the tax collectors and the sinners who are coming to him. He tells these parables to the Pharisees and the scribes who are self-righteous. And he says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, What woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
It's in this same gospel, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus states his purpose for coming into the world. And you know what he says? The Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek and to save the lost. Jesus is not drawn to the self-righteous person who thinks that he is okay with God because he is a good person who attends church on Sunday and gives his tithe and doesn't cheat on his wife and doesn't say too many bad words too, many, too often and doesn't feel that he needs anything. Jesus is drawn to those who are lost, to those who stumble and fall, to those who struggle and hurt and deal with shame to those who are wounded and have wounded themselves, to those who are broken and limited and fallible and frail and weak and sorrowful and sinful. Jesus is drawn to the lost who know that they are lost and who are desperate in their need for him. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came down from heaven. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus, who is God and has always been God, who is the eternal Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, he leaves the glories of heaven and humbles himself by taking to himself a human nature like ours so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest for us so that he can live a human life, a fully human life, while also being fully God so that he can experience what we experience, so that he can experience rejection, so that he can experience sorrow and hurt and pain so that he can understand what it is. Of course, he's God. He always understands everything, but so that he can empathize and sympathize with us in our weakness and in our sickness and in our sorrow, who it comes to endure every temptation that we have experienced yet without sin, so that we can receive his righteous record as he takes our sin upon himself on the cross. And Jesus, who came down from heaven, tells us something about the culture of heaven that is rooted in the character of God in these parables. And what he says is about the culture of heaven, rooted in the character of God, is that when one sinner, when one who is an outcast in their society, when one who is who finds himself, whether because of rebellion against God or because of self-righteousness by which he has thought that he has something to claim before God, when one sinner repents, you know what happens in heaven? It explodes with joy. Why? Because the heart of the most holy God so greatly delights in one sinner who repents that all of heaven rejoices with him. And he is like a shepherd who left the 99 in the field to find the one. And when he did, he calls his friends and his neighbors to come over to his house to rejoice with him because he found his sheep that was lost. Or have you ever been the widow looking for the lost coin? Have you ever been, uh, you know, maybe it was your cell phone or your wallet 
or a particular uh, card, a debit card or credit card or something that you have misplaced and you know how you will scour the entirety of the house and you begin to freak out about this thing that you have misplaced. You'll be like looking in the refrigerator and everything. And when you find it, the, the relief that washes over you, that you have found this thing that is lost, that's what God says that he is like when one lost person realizes that they're lost and looks to him alone for rescue. He rejoices and celebrates, and he calls all of heaven to join him. The celebration in heaven doesn't erupt necessarily when we are all good boys and girls and make all the right choices, but when we realize that we are sinners, whether through rebellion or, re or whether through self-righteousness, when we realize that we are sinners and we fall on our faces before the good shepherd, acknowledging that we are great sinners in need of a great savior, that Jesus is that savior. And when we repent, when we change our mind, when we turn away from the things that we have given our lives to and turn to the all-surpassing treasure that is Jesus Christ, that is when heaven rejoices. Dane Ortland writes this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. Brothers and sisters, do we marvel? Do we stand in awe at the reality that not only are we drawn to Jesus even in our sin, but that Jesus is drawn to us? Do we consider it amazing that the all-surpassing treasure treasures us. And he would treasure us to such a degree that he would go to the lengths of the incarnation. That he would go to the lengths of the crucifixion. That he would go to the lengths of the resurrection and the ascension to the Father's right hand where he has an ongoing ministry on behalf of sinners where he never stops interceding for us and pleading his bloodshed on the cross for us so that we receive forgiveness and eternal life and adoption into God's family. And he treasures you that much. I would encourage you today, I would encourage you right now to let the Jesus that we find here, this man receives sinners, to draw your heart toward him. And as you are drawn toward Jesus, you will find that he is drawn to you. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and often failing. 
He my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, He my comfort helps my soul. Jesus, I do now receive Him. More than all in Him I find. He has granted me forgiveness. I am His, and He is mine. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Sinners are drawn to Jesus because Jesus is drawn to sinners. And if you today are drawn to Christ, but you have not yet known him as Savior and helper and keeper and friend, and he calls you right now to repent, to turn away from your sins, to embrace him by faith alone, and to receive the all-surpassing treasure of existence, the one for whom it is worth giving up everything, and you will find that he is worth it. And for those of us who have known Christ, for those of us who have received forgiveness, have been reconciled to God and adopted into his family, for those of us who already know that we have eternal life, meditate on this. And it wasn't because you cleaned up your act. It wasn't because you're such a good person. It wasn't because Jesus needs you on his team. It was because Jesus is drawn to sinners that he claims you as his own. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are drawn to sinners because we are sinners. And we thank you that you are far more than enough to meet our need. We thank you for living for us and dying for us and rising again for us. We thank you for interceding for us at the Father's right hand. We thank you for the sure hope that we have that you are coming again to make all things right and to wipe away every tear from our eyes. In the meantime, Lord, I pray today that as we consider our sin and our failing, our struggling and our weakness, Lord, that we would be drawn afresh to you. And Lord, we would see how you are drawn to us, that you are tender toward us, that you love us, and that you will minister to us even in the midst of our sin and our shame and our sorrow and our failure. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be found as the tax collectors and the sinners, drawing near to hear you. And Lord, what we will hear if we draw near is that you so loved us that you gave yourself so that we might have eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would impress and refresh this in our hearts today. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word once more in song.